You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. We've got another super exciting show this week. It is none other than Aaron Radin, the recently announced CEO of the British Basketball League. There's been a lot of exciting things happening with the league over the last 12 months since obviously it took a £7 million investment from 777 Partners in the US. Um, and Aaron is the sort of going to be the head, the face of the of the league moving forward. Uh, his announcement was just a week ago. Obviously has a monumental task on his hands. Um, and so I thought it'd be good to kind of get him on and, and dig deep into his plans, uh, his approach, his, his background, um, and what he's thinking about the league and, and how he wants to operate and how he wants to take it to the levels that we all would like to see it get to. Um, super interesting conversation. And clearly, you know, he is super intelligent, super smart guy. And I think I've got a lot of time for what he has to say. I think um, there's there's nothing in it really that I disagree with. Um, so, yeah, watch this space, really. Um, as always, before we get into the show, take two seconds to check out our Patreon account. You know, if you like what we're doing, if you want to see us continue to grow and keep doing this thing, um, we are looking for monthly or annual contributions for as much or as little as you would like to support the work that we're doing. Uh, you know, for the price of a cup of coffee every single month, uh, you can help support Who's Fix, um, help us keep uh, independent and try to, you know, shine a spotlight on this British basketball thing. Um, the other thing you might notice I'm wearing a hoodie. It's kind of blocked by the, by the, by the microphone, but we have merchandise, merchandise on the way. Uh, this is a hoops fix hoodie. Uh, we've got a whole range coming hopefully in the spring. So I'm just putting on your radar now, hoopsfix.com forward slash store. Um, that will be populated with products. I'm hoping by March, we've got a whole range of tracksuits, hoodies, t-shirts, shorts, all coming. So I'm giving you a heads up on that. If there's anything particularly you want to see, uh, by all means, do let me know. Um, as always, let me know what you think uh, about the show and what Aaron has to say. Uh, you can either leave a comment below on YouTube if you're watching uh, or uh, reach out to me on every single social media platform at Hoopsfix. Or if you prefer some one-on-one -on -one interaction, you can drop me an email, sam at hoopsfix.com. I'll reply to every single one. Anyway. That is enough from me. This intro is getting a bit long-winded. Uh, here is this week's show with a new CEO of the BBL, Aaron Radin. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you are the man of the moment, uh, the new BBL CEO, obviously a sort of huge task ahead of you. And, you know, I really want to get into kind of what you've got on your plate and kind of how you're approaching the sort of coming months, years. Um, but I think it, it sort of makes sense, giving people a little bit of context of, of where you're coming from and sort of your background. You know, we've seen all these big company names being mentioned in the press releases um, <laughs> and kind of, of what you've done previous to this. But I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more detail of, of kind of what you've done and sort of your career trajectory up until this point. Sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me uh, on the show. I think is when when I first learned of this opportunity, uh, you and the and the media that you've produced were one of the great sources of of knowledge for me in understanding what's going on in the league and in British basketball in uh, generally. Uh, so thank you for that, and thank you for the for the work that you do. I think that not dissimilar from you. Um, you know, my career starts with a passion for the sport and wanting to be associated with it. Um, 
so coming out of college, uh, first job I had was was working at the NBA. Actually, I had a chance to work in the legal department, working on licensing and marketing agreements. Um, so, you know, I guess like just about everybody who worked in that department got to get yelled at by David Stern. Um, uh, but that was an incredible learning experience about how to build a brand, how to manage a brand, uh, how to manage a league as a collective. Um, and coming out of that, uh, I've had a chance to work at, at many different large media companies, uh, always in roles where we were building new businesses uh, or starting from a relatively nascent state of building digital content businesses and, and figuring out how to scale them in those cases within larger organizations um, and get them to some state of maturity and figure out, figuring out how to integrate them back into the larger operations. Uh, sandwiched in between those opportunities at Disney, CBS, NBC, Universal, I did two startups, one of which was my own. So, you know, it maybe took me too long in my career to figure this out, but I love building stuff. And uh, I like to think it's what, what I'm best at. And honestly, I think for anybody that's sort of starting out in their careers, it's, it's you know, one of the things that I, that I try and share is that it's really important to understand the phase of a business that you're interested in. You know, running running a business that's more mature or on the backside of maturity um, is very different from running something at a startup phase. And, uh, and through discovery, really, and the things that resonate and, and, and that I enjoy most from an experience standpoint, um, this, the building phase is the thing that that's most interesting to me. Uh, the other thing that that's, um, I suppose, relevant, well, I should I should point out that the, uh, I spent the last four years at Facebook, sort of now meta, uh, wanted to scratch a lot of itches, I suppose. I was very interested in working in a product-led organization, working globally at massive scale, and it is massive, um, and working with really smart, diverse group of people. Um, so I had a lot of fun there, learned a ton. Um, I should say that all along, nearly all along my entire career path, uh, I've been involved in basketball from a grassroots standpoint. Uh, I started coaching uh, nearly 25 years ago um, and just loved it from the very beginning, got much more involved in it, at, um, helped to manage a grassroots organization in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I've been lucky enough to coach a lot of really good players, um, several of whom have gone on to play in the NBA, uh, many of which have played professionally all over the world and Russell hundreds names. of kids who have had, uh, so Sebastian Telfair played in the program. Lance Stevenson played in the program, Chris Taft, Quincy Dubie, uh, boy, there's a lot of Coney Island people there, uh, <laughs> for those people who are familiar with, with Brooklyn. Um, and was this and an so, AAU pro program, an AAU program in Brooklyn? A AAU program. I mean, it, so. This is probably a, a, a almost a different podcast in sort of understanding <laughs> grassroots basketball in in the U.S. and in New York in, in particular. You know, it's interesting. We used to travel all over the place, and inevitably, no matter where we went, we'd end up playing another New York team in the semifinals or the finals, <laughs> which was sort of defeated the point of, of why you're traveling all over the country uh, to play to play different people. But um, yeah, we beat everyone. <laughs> and you know the difference i think it's interesting and i and i actually think uh there's potential for this in british basketball uh 
there was such depth in terms of the quality of players that you could find. Like our first five might have been as good as the next, the next, you know, whoever was starting on the other team, or maybe not quite as good, but our second five would come in and just destroy the other team's bench. And particularly like we would do, we were pressing the whole game. Uh, it was, it was fun, good times. And you look, I think, so it was another way for me to express my, my, my love for the game. And in particular there, um, I really got an incredible source of satisfaction, probably as much as anything in, in, in my life outside of my family, um, from seeing these kids develop, you know, many of them came from, um, quite deprived socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, very often they were, well, they were either single or no parent households, uh, raised by a grandparent or an aunt, an uncle, something like that. Um, often, most often they were going to be the first one in their, in their family to go to college and basketball was their, was their path to get there. So, um, I just loved that aspect of it and the development and the relationships that I've, I've formed along the way. So I have a real love of, a love of the game and, and understanding of how impactful it can be on, on people's lives. So this opportunity, you obviously kind of, well, how, how did it come about? How did you first hear about it? And then sort of, you know, the process of you, you know, coming to the decision that, yeah, I'm going to, you know, up and move to another country and take on this, this, this monumental challenge. Um, how, how did it all sort of come to be? I decided earlier this year that I was planning to leave Meta um, uh, for a variety of reasons. I think one, one of them was um, you know, working during COVID and sitting in front of a, a, a Zoom calls all day. Uh, I couldn't distinguish. If you ask me, you know, what were you doing in February versus July versus October? Like every day looked the same. I, ne I needed to, 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 to have a break. Um, what was your and I told my just, team just quickly. What was your, what were you yeah. kind of overseeing at Meta? Like, what was your sort sure? Of so a couple couple different things. Um, one is I managed uh, how we structured our global our, our our partnerships with our largest global brand clients. So Procter and Gamble, Unilever, L'Oreal, um, and so we had about a hundred and fifty of those type of partnerships. And the other part of, of the business that my team worked on is, is really sort of how we structured our go-to-market offering for um, selling video advertising okay. um, and principally going after TV and online video spending. Um, so <laughs> the numbers of Facebook are just, you know, take anything you've ever worked on and add, you know, several zeros. And it's just, it's just you know, the scale of it is just, you know, beyond imagination. Um, Anyway, nevertheless, I told my team uh, just by chance there's a there was a woman that was working on my team who actually had worked at the NBA previously as, as well in a different time tenure, um, who said, you know, my brother just got involved uh, with a team in London, and I understand that the investment group that's involved is is looking for somebody to come in and, and help with the management of, of the league. Are you interested in speaking to them? So the, her brother is Brett Berman, who's the general manager of, of the London team. Uh, we had a quick chat about it. Um, and uh, I started to do my homework and sort of, I suppose, how I discovered you. <laughs> uh, 
could you quickly come up when searches for Br British basketball on Google? Um, and, you know, I sort of, I suppose, quickly formed a perspective of, of how I would go about attacking this opportunity, if you will, principally that I, you know, to me, it seemed that this is, this is a media opportunity. It's a chance to build a content business. Um, and that as best that I could tell, the sport was extremely popular uh, in the country, um, had not, um, the full commercial exploitation of it had not yet been realized. Uh, part of that disconnect, if you want to call it that, was that um, uh, there were still many opportunities to build up the content uh, and present it to the marketplace uh, at a much greater scale um, and uh, an opportunity to really tell the stories of the participants, um, whether that's the players, the coaches, the league executives, uh, the fans, um, and those that you know are, are close and related to the sport, not unlike yourself. Um, and that's, you know, uh, an experience that I had had before in my career, perhaps multiple times. And so the combination of, of, of I suppose, the, the media building, uh, team building, content building um, process, which I love, and that it's connected to basketball, which is incredibly exciting, and that it's in uh, a marketplace, which... Um, I've spent some time in and really enjoyed and would love to spend more time in uh, was just really attractive for me. It's obviously a huge job, you know, like clearly there is a lot to be done. Um, where do you even begin? Like, like when, you know, you've obviously now you've taken the role, you're sitting down, you're working out, I guess, immediate priorities and what your plans over the next three months and six months yeah. and a year or whatever it might be like. Sort of, what's that? Pro what does that process look like? And I guess, what are the what are the immediate priorities? Sure. So, yes, it's a, <laughs> it is a huge job. Um, it's funny. I was saying to my to my wife the 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 other night that um, uh, there was some some issue or something came up, and I was sort of going through it, and she's like, "Oh, are you having fun?" And I was like, "Oh my god, I'm having a blast! Like this is incredibly fun." And this is a this is a, a lot of work to be done. <laughs> like this is this is not straightforward and simple. Um, so it's a very pertinent question to uh, what my life has been like the past past couple of weeks. So um, look, I think I think it goes again starting with 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 content. And so number one priority is to figure out our you know how are we going to efficiently produce high quality content across all of the surfaces through which people consume. Starts with broadcast. Um, we want to elevate the production of our broadcast to a world-class level. I'll come back to that in a, in a little bit as to why I feel that's particularly important from a business standpoint. But from a priority standpoint in terms of, you know, setting ourselves up, setting setting the team up, getting an organization in place that, that uh, has the capability to produce a world-class broadcast and uh, efficiently produce off of that all of the assets in the form factors to the various surfaces on which people consume. And so, you know, establishing that infrastructure and then establishing a content strategy. So 
what is game day minus three, game day minus two, game day minus one, day of game, pre, during, post, game day plus one, game day plus two. Like, what does that routine look like, if you will, from a content production standpoint? Um, so we need to have a team and a strategy in place. We need a technical infrastructure in place. So, you know, some of these things are sound basic, but having a CMS, having a CRM, which I'll come to in a moment, um, are critically important. Uh, I think about um, understanding our audiences. So that's one of the cr critical aspects, both from a, a business to consumer and a business to business standpoint, like who are the constituencies that we're going after? Uh, that we want to engage and how are we shaping the content experience of, of how they're experiencing our sport. Um, that is important. I think that um, we're looking at from an infrastructure standpoint, um, what are we doing to improve uh, our facilities? So as you're well aware, um, there are a couple of clubs in, in the league that, that um, own and operate their own facilities. Uh, there are, that's Leicester and Newcastle, of course. There are three others with plans in motion to develop their own facilities. Uh, Caledonia, uh, Sheffield, and, and Bristol all have announced plans. And, and, um, and so that leaves half the league uh, still in uh, renting facilities. Um, you know, and, and the facility is of course a stage and it's also a business opportunity. So from a stage standpoint, we want something that's going to present the game in the best light, both, uh, for the in-game experience. And then of course, for, for what does it look like on air? Um, and second, from a business standpoint, um, we want to be able to exploit all of the opportunities that come with, with having people, uh, file through a gate. Uh, and enjoying an experience on hand, concessions, retail, et, et cetera. So uh, that is, you know, sorting through how we can improve that across the league will be will be critically important. So as you can tell, like there's there are big priorities. I think in terms of the way that I'm managing my own time is I'm attempting to be um, uh, incredibly judicious in in really focusing on next year is sort of the kicking off point um, because there are tons of day-to-day -day issues that could occupy all of my time. And really like I'm, I'm really focused on how do I get the infrastructure in place to take the league to, to where I, I'm really convinced it can go to. So I wanna just loop back on what you said that you said you're going to come back to the, the broadcasting and sort of what goes into that. So, you know, you're starting with trying to produce a world-class broadcast. Can you kind of expand on that? What does it mean? What does it look like? What, what should people be looking for when that starts to get executed on? Sure. Um, so a couple things. One is I think, I think the quality of our broadcast has improved significantly this year. Um, and there's still room to grow. Uh, I think a couple of things. One is um, just infrastructure alone. More cameras at a game creates more access, right? So that's one. Uh, high, more high quality cameras at a game creates more and better access. So those are some, some let's call them you know, relatively obvious elements of, of, of the telecast. 
What, how many number of cameras from... would you be working towards? I wouldn't be able to give you a number now mm -hmm. um, because I think that that's going to require some level of trial and error in terms of how we can efficiently produce what we all agree is sort of a, a product um, that is worthy and comparable of being compared to some of the best telecasts in the world. Um, you know, the, the Sky games today are run off of six or seven cameras or the Euro Cup games are off of seven cameras. Um, we're using three cameras uh, for the games that are produced with a partner called Brandbox today. It's certainly more than three. Could we do it with six or seven? Maybe. Um, I think, you know, to some degree, it, then it becomes a, a direction question, how we integrate highlights. I think one of the key elements of, of having a, a, a great broadcast, of course, is that the pictures are telling the stories, but also that the commentators are telling the stories. And by that, I mean that um, they're not only narrating what's occurring on the court, um, and providing insight, um, particularly for this audience, which may not be as familiar with the sport about what is occurring from a color commentary standpoint, um, but also telling the stories of the participants. What is, you know, where did uh, Larry Austin come from and how did he end up in the BBL? What is the story of Kareem Queeley, like in his background as a British basketball player? Playing academy and you know and having and going to Spain in order to develop his career, um, telling the story of the coaches of the teams themselves. Um, so I want to get to a point where that's being woven into our telecasts uh, on a much greater basis, where those stories begin to resonate and create emotive connections with with our audience, so that they either strongly root for or even rooting against uh, uh, players because ultimately what we're trying to do is tap into that passion. Um, and I think you know, one of the principal ways to do that is of course, not only be excited by the action, but also to identify with the participants. You know, cl clearly when you talk about sort of increasing the infrastructure and, you know, having more cameras at games, you know, it's going to require a, a lot of staff which means requiring a lot more capital. Um, when we talk about sort of investment coming into the league, obviously 777, the initial investment last year was, was 7 million. Um, I saw an interview in front office sports the other day where um, I can't remember even who it was with, but he was saying that he expects their investment to get into the hundreds of millions, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, you know, how, how like what, what do you see as the sort of, uh, I guess, what, what's going to happen from an investment standpoint? How much money do you think needs to be raised um, to really get this to the to the level and scale that you, you're aspiring to get it to? Yep. I couldn't give you a number today. I'm literally in the process of, of building a budget now. Um, uh, as you rightly point out, and as I've declared here, like this is going to take more resources. And... Um, uh, I have every indication that more resources will be provided in order to su support this within reason, of course, like there's got to be a path to, to generate a, a business return. Uh, and that's the full intention. I think that, you know, even going back to some of your earlier questions, Sam, and thinking about the business, um, 
the reason focusing on the content business is critically important is it creates opportunities for us to create opportunities for brands. And by that, I mean, we have more ways for, for brand partnerships to um, more surfaces, if you will, more impressions, if you will, that are going to come from creating more audience and um, uh, richer presentation of the sport. And so uh, it's, you know, I'm incredibly optimistic of what this business can be uh, and know that in order for it to realize it, you, we're going to have to make that investment in uh, developing a, a much richer content product, which of course, as you point out, is going to require more resourcing. You know, uh, hopefully um, it's it's been clear, but it, uh, perhaps implied in my comments, but I'll make it more express, which is, and we need to focus on doing that as efficiently as possible. So when you think about workflow of creating assets and, you know, not to get sort of too in the weeds here, but that is critically important from producing a broadcast, being able to come out of a broadcast, pull all of the highlights, for example, making sure they're going to the right platforms with the right commentary, with the right form factor. Um, that workflow, those processes are critically important um, because you can, of course, get uh, overbound in process if you if you don't design it correctly from the outset. Yeah, I mean, even coming into this season, the, the deal was signed with WSC, which clearly just makes such a difference to the amount of content that the league can now produce yes. because having those automated platform, that automated platform that, you know, after a game within 10 minutes, you've got condensed highlights, you've got highlights of specific players, you've got breakdown of top rated players, um, plays. Um, so I guess you're kind of looking to systemize processes like that to be able to be as efficient as possible. Absolutely. And in fact, like technology has played a huge role in making this more efficient. Um, you know, I was involved in sort of linear television sports production going back 25 years. You know, we used to roll a huge truck. It, it delivered on site. Today you can produce a sport. You could produce it right from where you're sitting with, with you know, a set of software and a, and a, and a microphone and a, and a fiber line going into, into your apartment or flat, I should say. <laughs> um, and so that's not how we are intending to produce. We're not going to be doing it out, out of, out of my flat. Uh, but we do intend to try and centralize production as much as possible because there's a lot of efficiency to be realized, uh, in, in doing so. And the tools are available to help do, to, to help do that as you, as you rightly pointed out. Is the ambition, you know, from a, I guess from a, from a monetization perspective, is the ambition to get it to a place that you can get a major TV deal? Um, you know, we, we've obviously sort of charted the progress of the Australian NBL and, you know, they, they signed this massive deal with ESPN last year worth in the tens of millions, which is kind of, I think, where, where they're aspiring to get to. Like, is that when you see, um, I guess, the the, the the league shareholders getting a return on their investment or starting getting to a place where you're not losing money hand over fist, um, is TV a massive part of it or do you see other routes? Yes. <laughs> TV is TV is a part of it. Uh, I think that we absolutely want to develop multiple revenue streams. Um, look, I think part of the attraction of this role at this moment in time is what's going on in the television landscape 
and the way that people are consuming content and and uh, what's going on from an investment standpoint. So if you look at uh, the stock performance of Netflix, Disney, in fact, Disney turning over its CEO, going back to Bob Iger, uh, Warner Brothers, Discovery, um, Comcast, uh, um, and what's occurred over the last year where acquiring audience was paramount and, and Wall Street was re rewarding that to now profitability is, is rewarded. So um, we have a couple of things going for us that, well, actually more than a couple of things going for us that fit right in with what's going on in the marketplace generally. One, we have a live sports product. We produce ballpark 20 hours of live content per week. Um, there is incredible demand for live sports in the marketplace as reflected by all sorts of rights deals all around the globe. Two, and in particular for our sport is our sport is skewing particularly young. When we look at the, at the viewer demographic data, um, 70% of our audience is between the ages of 13 to 34. If you speak to anybody in the broadcast space, uh, whether for you know, the traditional sort of drama comedy programming, or even for a, a good deal of their sports programming, you're looking at an average median age of you know, 55, 55 plus in terms of the audience range. And the networks want to get younger because advertisers want to be able to attract younger, younger consumers. And third is on a relative cost basis uh, to what it costs to produce or, or procure an hour of programming, um, we are going to be relatively cheap. And so, uh, at least for the short term, <laughs> yeah. I hope to be expensive one day. Um, uh, so look, I think, I think we have a very strong value proposition, of course, like the broadcast quality needs to, needs to meet the, 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 the market need. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that there's a match to be made. I think that. You know, if, if you think about the revenue streams related to this business, having that distribution and scale of distribution will lead to uh, advertising or sponsorship opportunities. And, you know, that can range anything from, you know, the sponsorship of particular events all the way down to just running, you know, standard what are called spots and dots on, on air during a game uh, or on our website, you know, owned and operated properties. Um, there is, um, I think an extraordinary opportunity with branded content. Uh, I think that there are a lot of communities or audiences that we can target and develop, uh, authentic content to connect with them and integrate brands into that op opportunity so that you begin to build, uh, the, the, the brand equity with those audiences. Um, and, you know, all of these things, I believe can lead to building a bigger economy for the sport of basketball uh, in this marketplace. And in that respect, it creates all sorts of ancillary opportunities for the participants. Um, you know, even, even uh, you know, I look at, at, at an opportunity of partnering with somebody like yourself and there's, there's others in the marketplace that are involved in producing media content and, um, producing basketball as, a, as an event, as a business. Uh, and we want to 
to partner with folks like yourself in order to facilitate creating a bigger economy. Because the more fans that we have of the sport, uh, the more approachable the sport is, the easier it is for, for fans to engage in and with it, uh, the more opportunities there will be to partner with businesses that want to connect with those audiences. So that's a really exciting prospect for us. Uh, and then a related area is um, in licensing. And so um, leveraging the IP that's been created in this league, the, the marks of the teams um, to hopefully build demand uh, where people want to be um, consuming our products. It's buying a basketball with a Lester Riders logo to wearing a uh, Sheffield Sharks jersey to um, and showing up at games with that equipment or showing up at uh, in, you know amongst their friends. Uh, you know, I think that there's an opportunity prospectively to build a, a lifestyle brand and have an association of basketball being cool and, and the thing to do and, and the thing to be associated with. And one way to, to realize that is through licensed products. Um, so we think there's a really uh, interesting opportunity there as well. There was, yeah, there was, there was one, one figure that I actually wanted to ask you about because I heard you quote it in the, in the BBO interview as well, which is the 70% of your audience is 13 to 34. Mm -hmm. um, you know, wh where is that data from? Is that from your own internal analytics or is it from, I don't know, consultancy research that you've done? Like, you know, for, for, for me, I feel like the BBO audience either is super young, as in children that go with parents, or it's mm -hmm. much older. Um, and I feel that, I mean, we we from 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 a hoops fix perspective, you know, we we found historically our audience definitely does skew younger, thirteen to twenty four. Mm -hmm. And if we when we put out content BBL related, it it tends to really struggle. Um, and I've always found it hasn't quite connected with that young audience. So it surprises me to hear that that's the figure that you've got. So I'll be interested to hear kind of where you yeah. get it from. Yeah. Well, it's a pleasant surprise for me as well. Um, so those numbers are coming straight off of the YouTube live streams. Okay. And people that are watch, watching those games. So, um, of course, there you have a registered audience. Uh, and um, so, uh, yeah, I mean... I was pleasantly surprised. I think I think you actually highlighted one thing that I've noticed as well. So um, there's the numbers we have of, of who's viewing the games on, online. And then there's um, uh, what you see when you go into, into a, an arena to watch a BBL game. And, you know, what I see are a lot of families with young children. Um, Anecdotally, when I speak to people in the in the crowds, it's often the first time that they've been to a to to a game before. It's sort of a an attractive night out option, if you if you will. Um, perhaps less to do with with the with the fandom related to to basketball. Um, that's both a challenge, I suppose, and an opportunity. Uh, it's it's great that we have that it's a family friendly product. Uh, that people feel comfortable bringing their families to, to the events and are having an enjoyable time. Um, it's great to get that cross-section of different age groups um, involved. And I think from my perspective, obviously I want to have as diverse an, uh, an audience as, as possible. I'm not suggesting in any way that, yep, we're only programming for 13 to 34-year-olds. 
Uh, we want to appeal to uh, all types of people uh, from all types of backgrounds. Um, uh, but there is, you know, an interesting dichotomy, I suppose, in what we've seen in the in the data and what what you sort of see when you actually look at a crowd at at, at a game. Um, so it's something that we'll you know we'll continue to focus focus on um, and respond to as as you know as as more data comes in. Do you see the content as trying to be a driver to get? A different audience potentially or or bigger audiences i guess to to games i mean I, I don't even know what the average bbl attendance figures are across across the league but i would guess that they're not more than what uh 1500 ish to 2000 something as an average across the entire league um you know kind of yeah like how, how do you see the balance between the the content and then well it's the content and the product isn't it mm -hmm. so um Many of our teams sell out most, most if not all of their games. Um, so that's a good thing. It, it sort of demonstrates that there's more capacity in their marketplaces, which sort of goes to my point before about uh, uh, arenas. Um, so from a content strategy standpoint, uh, you're identifying you know, one of the key issues for us going forward, which is programming for the masses and programming to specific audiences. And it's actually one of the things that we're going to have to get good at both. Um, one is, is we need to have a product that's approachable for everyone. That's generally going to be the broadcast. There may be other examples of that, you know, the website, for example. And uh, we want to build content that might be more, more, more focused or, or perhaps a better way to put it is, is will resonate better for, for different audience subsegments. So, and I'm make you know, I'm giving you an example. I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily the, the audience that we are going after, but if you were, if we were going to program towards urban youth, what would that content look like versus what does it look like, you know, to uh, produce content just for our website? And how are we going to reach that audience? Is the website the best way to do it? Is the telecast the best way to do it? Is social, you know, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Snap, the best way to, to reach those audiences? So um, we're going to need to employ all of those strategies uh, in order to facilitate the engagement of, of all these different audiences. What does the, I think it's important for people to know kind of where, where the league is at from a staffing perspective right now. You know, we've seen there's been a couple of hires previous to you. There's obviously a head of marketing now with Joe Edwards and there's a head of broadcast um, with Manny Gill. Um, you know, are there yep. any other sort of hires that have happened? And I guess, what are you working towards? When you talk about the size of the league staff, what would you want it to be? Um, and what would it look like? Um. So yes, those folks have recently joined joined the group, and they're great additions to to the team. I think they've already had major impact in in the product that's being put out. Um, so as I mentioned before, I'm in process of putting together what what that plan ultimately looks like. Um, I couldn't give you a number today. I can tell you that building a content team will absolutely be critical. Um, there is an open role today to, to run content at, at the VBL. Um, and that person will be responsible for um, evolving the strategy that I've described here and uh, putting their team together. Um, 
uh, I think from a content production standpoint, we are going to explore uh, having the teams have their own content teams and or managing it on a centralized basis. I think it, you know, it could end up being a hybrid. It's still in an exploration process of, 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 of doing that. Um, you know, for the broadcast itself, as, as you know, in broadcast, like you have, you know, have somewhat of a centralized organization and then employ a number of freelancers on a game taking basis uh, for production. I wouldn't expect that we do anything significantly different here. Like we're not reinventing the wheel from a broadcast perspective. We're in fact uh, mirroring what a lot of other organizations have already done. Um, I expect that, <coughs> excuse me, that that uh, we'll need some people to focus on our licensing and commerce business uh, in terms of um, identifying, not only identifying opportunities there, uh, but prospectively carving out a bigger position for us in a retail environment, whether that's traditional bit, brick, bricks and mortar retailers or uh, digital. Um, uh, and you know, when I tour around uh, in, and go to various retail outlets today, if I go to a JD Sports, a Foot Locker or, or so on, there's very little, if any, footprint in those stores for basketball-related items. I look at that as uh, an opportunity um, um, to you know, carve out space, not perhaps with those retailers, perhaps with others. Uh, so we need somebody to focus on that and identifying you know, good licensing partners who can help produce high-quality products and ha perhaps may have retail relationships. Um, and then, of course, we need a commercial organization uh, that's going to connect with the B2B community uh, and be able to help uh, facilitate them meeting their goals um, and, and leveraging uh, the BBL uh, as a way to do so. So if, how many staff are employed by the league right now? Uh, so the league staff today is, you know, we're looking at nine, nine, 10 people. So, and so it's, it's a small group. How, like, obviously I know you can't give a specific figure, but if it's one roundabouts, like if we were to have this conversation in six months, 12 months, you know, are you hoping for it to get to 50? Are you thinking it's going to be 20? Like kind of what roundabout figures of, 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 of how much, how much bigger you're going to build the team? Um, it's less than a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and more and more than it is presently. Uh, look, I think having done operations like this, you never actually grow as fast as you think you will. Right. It's hard to hire people. It's hard to hire good people. You know, one good hire is worth way more than five mediocre hires. I'd rather hire like one good person. Mm. Um, so I don't know that I have a specific number in mind as much as, you know, but I do want to rapidly get a core team in place. Right. And so, you know, I've identified some of those key hires. I think that in many ways, I'm going to rely on them to identify what the needs are in order to meet our goals. So, you know, it's certainly less than 100. Uh, is it less than 50 a year from now? Probably. Um, but we'll, we'll see. There's still work to be done. So I couldn't, I couldn't be prescriptive about it at this moment. Gotcha. And then from from, um, from an organization perspective, with you and your role, I assume you'll be reporting to 
the board uh, and the other owners, Correct. like who who are you accountable to, and how will that work exactly? Like if 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 <clears throat> you know the franchises are not happy with you, ha- <laughs> what happens? Sure. So there's a board of directors. Like you know, this is all sort of publicly available, I suppose, information. Yep. Uh, the board is is constructed of the investors, and principally seven 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 at the moment. Uh, there are two club representatives, and there are slots for four independents on on the board. So that's that's the contract of the board, and that's that's who I report to. So, a question that has been raised ever since seven 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 have come in is this conflict of in, conflict of interest question. You know, as a as a franchise owner, as well as now, you know, clearly having a big say in how the league is operating and and what the league is going to be doing moving forward. Do you see that as a potential issue um, or do you think there are no conflicts there? Um, I don't know that that's necessarily a question for me to answer directly. I suppose that um, our interests are all aligned at the moment. I think the conflict of interest, if I'm if I'm understanding you correctly, that you're pointing out to could be a, a competitive imbalance issue. Um, and, you know, to some degree, it's related to the business, to running the business, and to, to a large degree, it's not related to, to running of the business. What I'm focused on principally is, is developing the infrastructure of the business. Um, you know, I think that I, I don't perceive it as a conflict of interest. If, if I did, and if I thought it was a significant issue, I'd probably be reticent to even sign up for the, for the role. Uh, I think that everybody is aligned in in building the growth. You know, going back to my comments before of the of the marketplace for for the sport in in this marketplace. Are there going to be divergent opinions? Of course, of how to go about it. Absolutely. Um, luckily for me, uh, at least one opinion that they converged on is that I'm qualified and that I should be uh, involved in helping to do so. Um, but look, I think, I think that, that, um, I haven't seen any indication, uh, to date that it's, that it's going to be a challenge, uh, for us going forward. On the topic of franchises, how many franchises do you think realistically the UK should be able to support? Um, how many would you like to see when we're talking about the growth of the league? Yep. Sure. So it's more than what we have today. Um, I don't know exactly what that number is. I think that um, it's a bit premature at this moment in time to discuss what it would be because of all of the infrastructure elements that need to be put in place to put us in a um, solid foundational um, uh, position to add additional franchises to the mix. I think that that both not only for for what other prospective investors slash owners would would bring, but also for the existing ownership and investor base, um, and and realizing uh, what should be the full value of um, an incremental franchise fee to to the league. Um, so we want to be on, I suppose, in more solid, broad, broad, broader footing. Um, I'll preempt you here because I, it may be your next question about putting another team in London, um, which, 
you know, I think could absolutely be in play, but all of the same things that I mentioned before would need to be in place before we, we consider, we would consider doing, doing so. Um, so, uh, you know, another team in London, a team in Birmingham, uh, you know, pick, pick another marketplace leads, um, all of those prospectively could be in play. Uh, but again, we want to have a more solid foundational structure be before we, we start exploring that um, more aggressively. So do you think we won't be seeing any new franchises anytime soon? Uh, I suppose it depends on what your definition of anytime soon is. Well, I guess Will it next, be next season? season? I, I, no, I, d I, would, I would not expect to see that next season. Right, okay. When you talk about what you envision the sort of the biggest drivers of revenue being for the business, where do you, like, if you were to try to, I guess, give us estimates of, of how you see the pie being broken up between the different pots, um, where do you think the money is going to come from? Well, I outlined it before. Uh, I don't know that I could give you a specific breakdown of, of how those buckets are, what percentage those buckets are going to contribute yet. Um, uh, in sport, of course, there is precedent, right? If you, if you look at any of the major leagues around the world, the NBA, the NFL, Premier League, um, you know, a great deal of their revenue is driven from broadcast. Uh, we are starting from a relatively low base in that respect. Um, uh, and so, you know, I would expect for some period of time, the other sources of revenue will, will contribute on a greater basis. But as, you know, as we grow the marketplace, uh, I think there's an opportunity for us to prospectively have a distribution, not, not unlike some of the other major leagues in the world, but we have, we have work to do to get there. On the focus of sort of players, um, I guess there's a, there's a couple of things I want to touch upon. Like, like one, uh, you know, how, how do you see that balance between providing opportunities for British players, British players being a, you know, a core part of the, the league and, and faces of the league, but then also, you know, bringing in elite talent, import talent, um, which of course has got a number of benefits. You know, you're raising the level and, and you've got people come mm -hmm. to see great basketball players and want to see good basketball. But then also the transient nature of that, you know, historically, you know, we'll get import players in that will come for one year and then disappear. And then from a from a point of trying to build that connection with the fan base, it's very hard to do. Like kind of how, how are you approaching that and, and, and sort of the balance between British and American talent? Yep, it's a great question. So um, look, one of the principal goals of the league is to develop British talent, hard stop. And so, you know, not only within a, a, the league structure itself, but also with, with all of the um, organizations that are involved in, in helping to develop the, the talent in, in this market. So, you know, from grassroots to Team GB, uh, we want to play a role in helping to facilitate the development and um, ideally keeping them uh, in market uh, to play in our league. Um, that's enormously important. I think um, one of the points that you made, I'll try and make it even more express, is um, we absolutely feel that there's value from a brand perspective, from a business perspective, for the audience 
to identify and root for homegrown players. Um, that's a key benefit for the business. Like, um, certainly, you know, I could theoretically, we could import all the players and maybe the product gets better, maybe it doesn't, but it wouldn't resonate as much with the local market. And we want to create that resonance. That's critically important. Um, so, um, and we want them to stick around for exactly the points that you made before, which is, you know, you create that identification and affiliation, um, fandom, if you will, of those players, uh, and be, you know, have an opportunity to create a, uh, long-term connection with them. Um, so it's critically important. Uh, and it's also critically important to test them against the best in, that the world has to offer. So it's, you know, to have uh, players come in from around the world um, that will challenge and play at the highest level possible is, is, is what we want, what we want for the league. Um, so, you know, I couldn't tell you whether we have the exact right mix today or, or it needs to be tweaked one way or, or the other. Um, I think the principles would, would stay the same. Um, but it is critically important that, 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 that the British talent is given, um, all of the nurturing, if you will, air, sunlight, water, <laughs> uh, to grow. Um, and, you know, I'm optimistic that, um, there is the appetite to do so. There's clearly evidence that world-class talent can be de developed in this marketplace. I mean, just look at what Jeremy Sohan is, is doing this year as somebody who grew up in, in this market. Um, and, you know, even beyond that, ideally we're giving them reasons to, to represent this market on, uh, on a global level. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a critical part of, of the league success going forward. Um, because it, it would be very difficult to create that resonance with, without, uh, high quality homegrown talent. What are your thoughts on like developing fandom and how you develop real fans? You know, I, I think that, um, with British basketball, we've struggled, we can, we can get bums on seats, but actually creating that fandom where people really are invested in the uh, success or failure of their team and knowing the players and knowing the backstories. Um, yeah, I'd love to kind of hear what, how, how you would approach that, what your thoughts are around it. And then I think yeah. there's a phrase you've obviously said to me, which is hope and memory. And I'd love to kind of hear you riff on that a little bit as well. Sure. Um, look, it's amongst the biggest challenges we have. And it's, it, it's a big reason why I'm, I'm so focused on the storytelling, because that's a way to create that emotive connection with the player, the coach, the team. Um, and I, you know, in some ways, I think it's a good segue to you referencing this hope and memory notion and just, you know, for, for your listeners. And again, this is not my original concept, uh, I think I first heard about this. There's a, a sports writer called Mike Lupica. Um, he's very famous in, in the U.S. for many years, columnist, uh, and said that sports is really about hope and memory. And by that, he meant that there's sort of two very specific elements of fandom. One is, you know, creating hope is 
what is the ambition for your team, your favorite player? Um, and there's a whole business around creating hope in the sports marketplace, right? Uh, the signing, you know, when, when a player is signed, why is that player signed? What is the narrative related to that player signing? How is he going to help your team uh, achieve its next goal? How is that going to be good for the player? You know, you look at, at someone like Fabrizio Romano, who's created an, an enormous following in covering uh, football transfers. And, you know, you wonder why is that? And I think it goes back to this hope factor because people are really interested in what is that next thing going to be? Because then what is it going to mean? And there's a whole cottage industry, if you will, of sports talk that's related to hope, creating topics of discussion. You know, should this person, you know, be on the all-star team? Is this a better player? Is this player a better fit than the other for the team? So that's one aspect. Um, so I think, I think we've got um, a path to... Uh, begin to have that be resonant for for our fans, and it's a way to create fandom. The memory piece is 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 a you know, is really about the nostalgia that comes with sports, and you know, the World Cup is going on now. Uh, everyone talks about England winning the World Cup in 1966, even though most of the people weren't that are talking about it weren't even alive. Like it's a resonant moment in the history. Uh, of, of the country that's related to sports. There are plenty of others. And so, you know, when you see a highlight over and over again of a particular moment that occurred in sports history, it's, you know, David Beckham scoring from midfield that you've seen the highlight play over and over and over again. And there's something that's resonant about that. It's like a, it's a nostalgia. It's, a, it's a, almost like a comfort food in some ways that you know, people begin to identify with those moments in their lives. They connect them to moments in their lives when those things happened. Um, uh, there is memory that exists in the BBL. Um, it's not as widely known as I would hope it would be. Uh, and I look at that as an opportunity to tell some of those stories and hopefully begin to create um, some memories uh, of things that occurred in the past, but certainly going forward, it's something that we're going to attempt to, to do as well as to, to create create that that resonance. Um, you know, those to me are the principal elements of developing fandom. I think for me, you know, coming coming from the U.S., uh, going to football games here, um, you know, I would analogize it to. Uh, it's like going to, um, <laughs> in some ways it's a cult, in some ways it's sort of a religious experience. You know, there's, there's such a ritualism about, about um, uh, going to these football matches and many, for many of the people there, it's sort of passed down through generations. Like you are, you know, it's, it's, it's in your blood uh, who you're associated with. Um, uh I think that's a really that's really unique, and that's a difficult um, uh, point of comparison for what we are, what we are, can achieve. Um, doesn't mean that we can't achieve deep fandom. Uh, uh, will it be as tribalistic as you see in football today? Next year, probably not. Five years, still probably not. Ten years from now, maybe. You know that it's possible. 
um, because you know the the behavior in the marketplace has suggested that it is possible. In fact, it's it's demonstrated that it's possible. Um, you just need to create enough of those resonance points for it to to land in that manner. A hundred percent. Always, you know. Sometimes I'm like, oh, when I watch British fans at basketball games, I'm always like, oh, they're so quiet and they're so reserved. I'm like, maybe it's just not in our nature, yeah. like culturally, to do those things. Then I'm like, well, actually, no, because if you go to a football game, it's the complete opposite. So clearly, within British culture, it's possible. You just obviously have to get to a place where where you kind of develop that. It was actually fascinating. Well, go, go on. Sorry. No, I was going to say, Sam. So um, I don't know if you've seen that that uh, at the Lions game, that sort of this organic fan group has has evolved. Yeah. Um, that's growing over time. Ironically, it's actually a colleague of mine. His nephew is the what is the leader of the of the group. That's just totally random. Um, uh, but that's sort of like the kind of organic enthusiasm that it, that's clearly being demonstrated as possible. Albeit, you know, on a relatively small scale today, but certainly could grow. Yeah. Um, so it's it's there, and as you say, the culture is there of singing the songs and so on. I think one of the things for me, like if I go to a football match, everybody's watching. I don't want to suggest that they're not watching the match, but that's like a part of the experience. It's not the whole experience. The a lot of the experience is just going and singing the songs and having the camaraderie of of being with 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 their colleagues and so um i'd love to have both <laughs> i want them you know engaged in, in the match of course um but it's an interesting dichotomy in terms of you know the, what fandom looks like i'm aware of time but there's just a couple one more thing i really want to touch upon um is sort of the disparity between certain franchises budgets operational staff, all of that kind of stuff, you know, that has clearly been a big issue in the past. Um, yep. how, how are you approaching that? And how, I guess, can you help the, the smaller budget franchises, small, smaller, smaller, smaller uh, teams, I guess, level up um, to try to get the league sure. a, a great level of parity? Sure thing. So, you know, uh, I'm not being defensive at the first part of this answer. I'm just pointing out sort of the obvious, which is this exists across all leagues, right? Like it's it's not uncommon um, that uh, you know, a different, um, uh, a, a large differentiator in sport is budget. <laughs> um, uh, and it happens in all leagues around the world, you know, certainly here in the pre Premier League for sure. Um, uh, second is, you know, my role is to elevate the business of the league. Uh, in order to do that, I've got to elevate the audience of the league. Uh, and part of elevating the business of the league is creating, um, and I referenced it before, perhaps not clearly enough, is by centralizing um, a lot of the league's business. So... <laughs> Let me take a step back. Um, I think of, of the construct of the league business in sort of two components. There's a national, what I'll call a national part of the business and a local part of the business. So on a national level, we're going to be focused on things like broadcasting rights, licensing, national sponsorships. Um, at a local level, you're looking at local exploitation. So local business opportunities, local partnerships, local sponsors, if you will. 
those are both, you know, those are obviously two forms of revenue. Um, uh, depending on who that local participant is, uh, and by local participant, I mean a, a particular club in a particular market, the size of their market is going to dictate to some degree their opportunity, right? So London is going to have a bigger opportunity just as a function of the scale of the, of the city of London. Um, that being said, I would imagine uh, it's the, you know, I don't know if I'd say it's a goal, but I would imagine that, that you know, with the, with the, the strategy that we're putting forward, that the, the, the vast line share of the revenue, uh, and that's not an intended button, are coming from uh, national sources. And the national sources will be distributed equitably amongst the clubs. It's a long way of saying that uh, when you generate revenue at a central level and distribute it to the stakeholders equally, they will have, at least from that portion of, of their resources, uh, equal budgets or equal funds to invest into the product on the court. Um, you know, again, local might be different. They might have other sources of, of budgets in terms of what, what they're willing to put into the business. But my goal is to generate as much of a distribution for all of the clubs as possible so that they can invest back back into the sport. So if the league signed a, I don't know, let's just say a 20 million deal with, with the SPN, for example, how, how, what is the split between what the league would get and then what would be distributed amongst the franchises? After you take out the well, so after costs, yeah, of course, <laughs> of course, it would get it, it would get distributed equity. You know, it would act as a dividend. Right. Okay. Cool. Um, and then finally, I think. Look, yeah, you know, on. the board. Sorry, the board has to be aligned in terms of what reinvestment strategy looks like overall, right? So, uh, and that's the where the cost the cost component. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, yeah, finally. How are you going to measure your success? What does success look like? Let's say within within twelve months from now, you know what what are you expecting from from yourself and the league, um, and how will you measure it? Sure. So it's a great question. I think it's it's actually a work in progress. Is what are what are the key KPIs for this league going forward? Um, some of them are qualitative, and some of them are are quantitative, right? So we're already tracking consumption, or to, to put it in a better way, we're setting up the infrastructure to, to track consumption against a variety of different metrics. And so obviously we want to be tracked uh, um, up and to the right. Um, uh, and we're going to test, you know, on an iterative basis, what things are working, what things aren't working and make sure that we have uh, the mechanisms in place to adjust based on, on what those, those metrics look like. Um, you know, for me, the key, the key goal going into next season is we are set up with an infrastructure to allow us the opportunity to be successful. Uh, in order to do that, it's having a good broadcast product, having good distribution, um, building a, a, a team uh, for all the roles that I mentioned before, um, and allowing them uh, the time and space to, to put into place their own teams and their own strategies to execute against what I've described here. Um, 
you know, that would position us to, to have a, a more than a fighting chance of success. I mean, ultimately, like, um, we want to produce a great product that people enjoy um, and get out of the way for, for a large part, just allow them to enjoy it. Um, and if that occurs, I'm very confident that we'll have a, a good business that will continue to support making it even better. Perfect. That is a perfect place to leave it. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, and I wish you all the best with the task ahead of you. I look forward to following and uh, hopefully Thank you see you. the continued growth of the BBL. Sam, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Hey, podcast listener, but you weren't expecting to hear from me again. Now that you've listened to the show, please take two seconds to take your podcast player out of your pocket and give us a rating and review on iTunes. It would be massively appreciated and goes a long way in helping us spread this content far and wide. Literally take your phone out of your pocket right now, uh, open up your podcast player, go to the Hoops Fix podcast, you'll see the option to leave a rating and review. Drop us a five star if you love it. And uh, if you could take two seconds just to write a review as well, it would be massively, massively appreciated. Thank you and speak to you next week.